นมูตสาบกวัตัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทธัสนมูตสาบกวัตัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทธัสนมูตสาบกวัตัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทธัสพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสัมพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสั
enjoying the benefit and the bliss of liberation, but also presumably there was the process of formulating this teaching. And what he came up with and what he delivered was what we know as the Four Noble Truths. And this is what the Buddha said we can do about our predicament. Life is like this. The Buddha and all the great realized beings live in the same world as we do, but the difference between them and us is that they didn't have any suffering. They had pain, they grew old, they got hungry, they experienced frustrating circumstances, but for them there was no suffering, and that's significant. And So all of us, of course, have this interest in what is this realization? What is it that we can do about our predicament so that we also come to know what the Buddha knew, which is how to live in this world as it is, but without making a problem out of it. How to come to know for ourselves that suffering is not an obligation. Pain is part of the package, but whatever it is we do that turns that pain, disappointment, frustration into suffering is an option. And so we're all interested in how to do what we can do to stop that. So that's what the discourse on the Tamachakapawatana Sutta is about. This. The Buddha said it's through not knowing two things that we stay stuck in this state of frustration, not knowing suffering, not knowing the cause of suffering. And so in many ways through the rest of his life he articulated this process and pointed to and encouraged us to follow the pointing, to follow our interest in freedom, to get to see for ourselves what is it that we're actually doing that makes the problem. The first step in the Four Noble Truths is, um, again, as you all know, is that, that, that there is suffering. And you might think, well, that's fairly obvious, but our addiction to the habits of denial of suffering mean that even though we've got this thing happening all the time and we're always uh, feeling frustrated and let down and disappointed and so on, even though we have this experience, we don't get the message. And so we keep doing it over and over again. So it's relevant that the Buddha made this the first point to contemplate, that there is suffering. In other words, to, to learn to undo this habit of avoidance, to get free from our addiction of ignoring the reality, which is that we're creating a problem where there really isn't any problem. So to come to admit, yeah, you're not feeling good. Again, it can sound pretty obvious, but often it's the case, usually it's the case, perhaps for most people it's always the case, that as soon as suffering arises, as soon as you're having a bad time, we try to avoid it, if not by some sort of physical distraction, it's by blaming, projecting responsibility outwards. But what the Buddha wanted us to see was to inhibit that habit and come back and say it's like this. So, yeah, having a bad time. There is suffering. There is disappointment. There is sadness. And not judge it. No judgment. It's like this. Again, remembering the Buddhist is not seeing two things that we stay stuck in this difficult situation and not seeing the suffering and not seeing the cause. And, uh, 
So the second point is to investigate that. Until we come to see that it's not the pain that's a problem. That's part of what happens if you're born. But there's something else that we're adding to it. And the Buddha, with his clear perspective, his clear seeing, his right view, uh, identified this habit of clinging, of grasping. When agreeable and disagreeable sensations arise, we add to it with this extra activity. We grasp, and in so doing, we complicate it and make a problem out of it. So what can we do about it? Well, certainly this this teaching that the Buddha gave, the the Dhammachakapawattana Sutta, and by the way, that's only the first two points of the Four Noble Truths. But once yeah, you recognize that there is this habit we have of complicating life unnecessarily, yeah, we don't want to just believe in it. Yeah, you can do that. You say the Dhamma Chakrapawatana Sutta, the turning of the wheel of law, you can make a golden wheel and make wheels out of gold and put them up on the wall and then bow to them turn it into some sort of a holy cow. And we Theravadans can be pontificating about the Four Noble Truths, but still be utterly addicted to our habits of avoiding the fact as it arises. So the point of this teaching is to alert us to this predicament, to bring us back to when life is a struggle... What we want to do is get interested in it. Because there is something we can do about it. It's not just something to believe in. It's not just something to hope for. There is hope in it. It's very hopeful teaching. It's not a pessimistic teaching. I'm sure all of us would have come across people commenting on Theravadan Buddhism, always going on about suffering. And uh, that's... uh, that's a misappreciation of the Buddha's pointing to this phenomena. And so, and in fact, it's a tremendously hopeful and positive message. So what can we do about it? And, well, what we're invited to do is to learn to let go. That's, if clinging is the uh, mistake that we make, then... Letting go surely is the remedy. And I've been thinking recently about that uh, poster or that picture down in Kusla House that many of you would have seen with a nice photo of Ajahn Chah there with a quote from his teachings that says, if you let go a little, you have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you have complete peace. There's a, a very attractive, simple logic to that. Oh, I'm sure all of us recognize it. It's laying out the path of practice. Again, it's not just something to believe, but this is what we can do. However, if we are not careful, we can, even with this teaching on letting go, turn that into some sort of an idol. And, and we can be telling ourselves, I'm supposed to be letting go all the time. And we can be judging ourselves because we don't know how to let go enough. And 
And we can likewise turn letting go into some sort of a holy cow, something that we idolize rather than using it as a helpful concept to direct our attention in a skillful way. So even even this teaching on letting go, which is directly pointing to what we can do, we do need to be careful about. Because if we look more closely at experiences that we've perhaps had of letting go, if we're honest about it, then maybe you come to see that letting go also is not something that we do, it's something that happens. We don't do letting go, letting go happens. So we need to be subtle about this, uh, the encouragement we have in training and, and attention and, and carefulness and watchfulness, so as we don't just, again, even the teachings, the Buddha and the, the great teachers, even these are not just something that we grasp at, but they're something that we learn to apply. So not even though we have the teaching that grasping is the cause of uh, our suffering, and we'd like to be free from this habit, and that letting go is, is the way out, but paying attention to what brings about the letting go. You know, not, just, not just clinging, well, you know, I've got to become somebody who's letting go. That's what it means to be a Theravadan Buddhist. This is what it means to be a disciple of Ajahn Chah, somebody who's practicing letting go. And you know, Perhaps if you've read some of the teachings of Ajahn Chah, you, you would have come across the examples where he's pointed out the unwise letting go. I think he calls it the letting go of a water buffalo. He's referring to a monk who was sitting in his hut there and the straw roof had caved in and and the monk is sitting there and all his robes and his possessions are all wet from the rain and Ajahn Chah doing one of his inspections of the monastery, checking up on his, on his monks and he sees this disciple sitting there meditating all drenched in the rain and he asks him what he's doing. He said he's doing letting go. And Ajahn Chah points out that's the letting go of a water buffalo. That's not very wise, yeah. If you idealise letting go, then you can end up doing that. Trying to be somebody, trying to become somebody. Becoming, as the Buddha pointed out, is not the way. Becoming is suffering. Even becoming wise. Another of the well-known quotes from Ajahn Chah's teaching where he points out, he says, "Don't, don't be an arahant, don't be a bodhisattva. If you if you're anything at all, you're going to suffer. Again, a skillful pointing to don't simply grasp at the idea of doing a technique, of, of becoming somebody. Our attention needs to be much more subtle than that. So if we have this teaching from the Buddha and the great teachers pointing to our habit of avoiding suffering and hopefully getting a little deeper and more subtle and, and seeing beyond that uh, question, well, what can we do? 
how do we go about this? And again, the Buddha was very, very clear, very specific in inviting us to investigate the consequences of clinging. Because this is when letting go happens. If we want to know how to generate the conditions for bringing about letting go, it's to observe the consequences of clinging. Not idealise letting go and trying to do it, trying to imitate it, but being acute enough in our awareness, being present enough with our mindfulness, having slowed down enough and followed the heart's native impulse to be free from suffering, rather than following what's going on in our head, idealizing about how we should be if we want to become enlightened or become wise or be a good Buddhist or something. Rather following the instinct and interest that comes from that to be free from suffering. Then in the moment when we are suffering, we stop and look at it. And in so doing, understanding arises, or there's a chance that understanding will arise. If we just cling to the concept of not clinging, we're just clinging. I was talking to somebody earlier today, uh, an abbot of another one of our monasteries, and he was saying how this young fellow had come to visit the monastery, and he had a good experience there, and it was uh, very encouraging for him, and and which the abbot gave him a, a book that was printed by the monastery, and and this young chap was very happy to receive it. And and but then when he left, he gave it back to the teacher. He said, "Oh, I, I really like this book, and I've had a really good experience here. But I'm afraid I might become attached to it, and so I don't want to take it with me. I'll give it back to you." Well, if we're afraid of becoming attached, if we're afraid of suffering, that's just another symptom of our. Uh, habit or our addiction to avoiding suffering what we need to do is get more honest about it we establish the parameters of our practice the parameters of our behavior by keeping the five precepts we can live within the five or the eight or the ten or the 227 precepts whatever our vocation might be so that defines the activity of body and speech and then within that we welcome suffering You don't want to get carried away and say, bring it on, that's a little inflated, but not following our tendencies to avoid suffering. If we're interested in this facility exemplified by the great teachers like Ajahn Chah, letting go, if we're interested in that, not just letting go a little, but letting go a lot, and potentially letting go completely, if we're interested in that, We want to see the consequences of our clinging. Really welcome, welcome the consequences of our clinging. And then contemplate it. There's the cause and here's the effect. And that's when letting go happens. Similar to the pain we experience in the body, it's a message. You stub your toe and you have that particular form of nervous disorder where you don't register any pain and you don't pay attention to the damage that's been caused and and who knows what sort of infection or 
even eventually maybe gangrene, sets in and you lose part of your limb because we didn't heed the message. The pain is a message saying, pay attention. But if we don't have a good education, we don't understand accurately, then we judge the pain and saying, this is a pity, this is unfortunate. Talking about emotional pain here, pain in our hearts and our minds that when we feel sad, disappointed, disillusioned, let down, we simply judge it and distract ourselves. And that's, that's the opposite of practice. So the letting go that we can admire and aspire towards is not something that we do. It may be the characteristic of freedom, a path of practice, but it's something that happens. Or as, uh, as Ajahn Abhinando points out, as a... It's an accident. Talking about being freed from the habit of clinging, grasping, it's something that happens just similar to the way an accident happens. But as Ajahn Abhidanda points out, you can make yourself accident prone. There are conditions that we can generate, like, for instance, getting interested and the consequences of our clinging, our habits of clinging. We can contemplate letting go in terms of a little, a lot, or completely. And it's like, in a way, it's like contemplating the quantity of letting go, but it can also be useful, very useful to consider the quality of letting go. It seems to be that for some people their practice is is a series of, of lots of little letting goes and incremental increases in faith and familiarity with the path of practice of letting go and increased well-being and understanding. And yet it seems that there are others whose practice is more characterized by big letting goes, not lots of little letting goes, but big letting goes that sometimes, for some people, just seem to happen. They may happen in the context of a retreat or in keeping the company of some great being, or maybe it just happens spontaneously in the middle of nowhere in particular, but it does seem to be that that some people experience these big letting goes or deep letting goes that totally turn their world upside down. And it is helpful to appreciate that when teachers teach from their experience, they are sometimes talking about different types of letting go. Somebody, for instance, whose practice is characterized by a whole series of lots of little letting goes, may be particularly skilled in, in teaching various techniques in practice, developing skillful means. 
And it's probably got the flavor of being goal-oriented. Maybe it feels a bit like somebody who feel, thinks they never have enough money in the bank. They're always trying to get more. They're always studying more, developing more, going on more retreats, listening to more teachings. But for somebody who's experienced a big letting go, the kind of letting go that introduces them to a fundamentally different perspective on reality, the flavor of their teaching may be more like somebody who has a sense that there's plenty of money in the bank, they just need to be concerned about how to spend it or or how to access it. They're not possessed of a view of lacking, always needing to get more, and always developing and going somewhere and seeking more teachings and teachers and techniques and so on. And, and maybe one could call that sort of practice uh, source-oriented. It is a, an intuitive appreciation for what's always there. Yeah, their teaching or their practice might... Uh, appear like they uh, have lost access to their bank account. Maybe they've forgotten their password. But there's still the sense that the resources are there. Somebody whose practice is uh, an effort to develop lots of skillful means and, and... build up their ability and, and intentionally cultivate an increase in faith, uh, they, can, they can get confused by, by the teachings from somebody who is coming from a different perspective. and Maybe it's not even helpful for them. And similarly, somebody who's experienced the kind of letting go which has relativized all experience perception that relativizes all conditions and personality and all aspects of personality and somebody teaching from that perspective can end up causing a lot of confusion for people in our investigation of what it is we can actually do about this predicament of creating suffering when there really isn't any suffering and creating problems when problems don't actually exist, uh, it's skillful to, to stop and consider not just the uh, amount of effort we put into letting go but also the quality of letting go. In both cases, whether it's small letting goes or big letting goes uh, that we're dealing with, in in both cases, surely it's uh, increasing capacity for trusting that we want to see. Mm -hmm. And trusting is not something that we can figure out with our head. We can try, but when I describe this aspect of practice, I 
I refer people to to the experience of 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 learning to float if you're swimming in the sea. Hmm. How do you float on the water? Is it something you learn by trying? There's a certain sort of there's a certain way of trusting that means you're still going to sink. You're trying to trust, and somehow it doesn't do it. It doesn't work, and you still sink. But maybe you've had the experience that there's another way of trusting, whereby you just float on the surface. How do you do that? Well, it's certainly not through concepts. So whatever sort of letting go, whether it's a series of small letting goes at feeding and nourishing our increased faith or whether it's some sort of big letting go that has turned our world upside down and we're trying to recover from it and integrate that perception to the rest of our lives, whatever it is, the way to build on it I would suggest is through emphasizing the cultivation of trust. In either case, we're not dismissing the place of effort, we're not dismissing the place of will, but we're not prioritizing trying and willfulness. We're prioritizing trusting, a special sort of trusting, as I was saying. It's not something we learn from reading books but it is something that we can grow in. When somebody asked the, uh, one of the Buddha's chief disciples, the Venerable Sariputta, uh, what are the conditions for, for cultivating right view or clear seeing? The Venerable Sariputta pointed out that there's two conditions. One, one is wise reflection, which we talked about. Yeah. When you're suffering, uh, not just distracting ourselves and avoiding the consequences, but stopping getting really interested and considering it wisely, looking for the cause. And so wisely reflecting. And the other condition, uh, that also put a point or two, was uh, listening to those who know what they're talking about. Or spending time with those who know for themselves the practice of letting go. Associating with the wise, as, as the Buddha put it. And so it does seem to be that there is something we can do about our predicament, but probably it's going to be most helpful if we don't get too serious about it. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.